Good morning, friends. Isn't it great to worship together on this particular Sunday, especially? It is. It's been a, it's been a great day. Uh, this day, of course, Sunday is the high day uh, on the Christian calendar, isn't it? Easter Sunday. It's the day that uh, sees the highest attendance, at least traditionally, around the world. And uh, today we, we celebrate it here at our church as well. On this Sunday, at least in most churches around the world, uh, you'll be able to hear a, a sermon on the, the resurrection. They usually turn to Matthew 28, Mark 16, which you just heard read to you, Luke 24, or John 20, and adjust their sermon series or interrupt their sermon series so that they could preach this sermon on the resurrection. As if the resurrection is nowhere else to be found in the scriptures, right? So my contention is to you this morning that, that uh, if the resurrection is indeed a, a big a deal as we want to make it out to be as Christians, uh, we ought to be able to find it elsewhere in the Bible, right? Other than four places, once in each gospel. I believe it's found everywhere in the Bible. In fact, even in Mark 6, lo and behold, uh, the, 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 the story of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is is wound in and through and about every single text in scripture. It's, it's everywhere. And today I want you to see it here in Mark 6. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to read for you verses 7 through 13. Mark 6, 7 through 13. See if you can sniff out the resurrection here, okay? And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so as we begin today our exposition of this particular text, I want you to notice right off the bat in verse 7 what Jesus is doing. It says, he called the twelve to them to him and sent them out. The word send there in verse 7 actually means to commission or to appoint or represent someone with the goal to accomplish their work. So Jesus came to accomplish certain things, right? We've been studying that here in the book of Mark. Now, as he appoints these twelve, he, he really commissions these twelve to go and continue his work in that region. The Greek word that, that Mark used in verse 7 for send is apostello. Does that sound familiar to you? Apostle. That's where, the, our, that's where we get our word, apostle, from this particular word used here in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Apostello, to send, to represent, to be commissioned by the Lord Jesus. And so these were the 12 apostles. And they were sent into the world with the gospel message. So this, this passage that we just read, 
marks the beginning of the evangelistic ministries of the apostles. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit, so they didn't have his power, they didn't have his guidance yet, but that was to come quickly. In fact, we read of that in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when Jesus told them to go first to Jerusalem, and then to Judea, which is the next concentric circle, and then to Samaria, the next concentric circle, and then into all the world, right? Which is the final concentric circle. Which is why we're finding ourselves in church this morning. It's because someone obeyed the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Even in Yakima. This is where you must go to preach the gospel. But this is what it says in Acts 1.8. Jesus said to these 12, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And what are they supposed to do? Jesus already told them in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what you're gonna do when you go. You're gonna represent me and teach them everything I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is what they do. This is what the apostles did. And, and I wanna to explain to you this morning why it's important that if you're gonna follow Christ, you and I do the same things. We are sent by the same Savior into the world to accomplish the same things that these 12 were here in Matthew 6. I also want to begin explaining this to you by asking you to notice the type of people that Jesus chose to go do this. Notice that these were the 12, and who were the 12? Ordinary guys, the most ordinary you could find in the land, right? <laughs> They're blue collar, average guys. They were not part of the religious elite. None of them were priests, rabbis, Pharisees, Sadducees. They were simple fishermen for the most part, common laborers. One was a tax collector, another guy was a professional rebel, but they were common Joes. That's who they were. What do we learn from that right off the bat? God uses ordinary people. Aren't you thankful for that? He can use people like us. We don't have to be scholars. We don't have to know the Bible backward and forward, and we'll see that clearly here in a minute. We just need to obey the command to go and open our mouth. Um, Listen, listen to how Paul describes those that, that Jesus chooses. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Check here. Uh, not many were, according to the world standards, wise at least. Not many powerful. Second check. Not many were of noble birth. Third check. I qualify. Right? You qualify most likely. There's probably a few of you that are noble, but most of us meet every single one of these qualifications for being chosen by God to be his sent ones into the world, starting in our Jerusalem, your home, your neighborhood, and then our Judea, Yakima, maybe Eastern Washington, all of Washington, and then our Samaria would be maybe a little further out and all the ends of the earth, we send someone Let's see, to Indonesia, let's do that. That's what we did with Andy and Kelly, right? So we are participating in this whole concept here. We're following suit of what we see here in Mark 6 and also in Acts and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and everywhere else in the New Testament, all right? We're in on it. You may be sitting here a little bit uneasy hearing that I need to go out and tell people about Jesus. You know, I'm not, I'm not gifted at that. I don't have skills at that. I wasn't personally discipled by Jesus. I don't know about you, but I was not, and I don't have that. Well, guess what? 
Um, God's commands always include God's supply, don't they? If God has commanded you to accomplish something, do you think he's going to say good luck? Or is he going to give you the tools to do what he asks you to do? He's going to do that, isn't he? He is. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, the Apostle Paul, this highly gifted one, even says what I just told you. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. In other words, we're not geniuses, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers. Who's going to allow you to accomplish his will in this neighborhood? God is. Why? Because he's called you to do it. All right? These verses are very important to get a grasp on so that you can fully understand what it is that God has called you to do. Okay, so if you've ever wondered, what's my role in the plan of God now in my life? Today's the day you're going to find out. All right? This section of scripture shows us the characteristics that Jesus wants in those he sends. The characteristics that he wants in you as he sends you out into the world to accomplish the things these 12 were doing. And then not just the, the characteristics, but the content of what you're going to share with your friends, neighbors, and family. You know, you might be all motivated to get out and, and share something, but, you know, wonder what it is you're going to say when your mouth opens. Well, today you're going to find out. Not only what the characteristics that Jesus wants in you, but the things that he wants you to say even are here in this text. So let's begin looking by the, by the, at the characteristics of these messengers. And not just these 12, but these messengers sitting in the room. The characteristics that Jesus wants in the people he sends. The first is this, and it's seen in verse 12. Proclaim the gospel. It says in verse 12, So they went out and proclaimed that all people should repent. They opened their mouth and said something. They proclaimed it. Proclaim means to simply boldly speak. Boldly speak, in this case, of the good news of Jesus. That's what it means to proclaim. We proclaim our allegiance to the Republican or Democratic Party. We proclaim our in enjoyment of the Mariners or the Seahawks or whatever else. We, we proclaim stuff all the time. How great our kids are, etc. Well, Facebook is a proclamation platform. This is what we're all good at, right? And here, in this case, Jesus wants us to proclaim the good news. This is what we're proclaiming here. We could call this uh, being ambassadors. We all know what an ambassador is, right? It's, it's a person that's sent out to represent another. This is what we see all the time in politics, world politics, and it's used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Listen, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to the masses through us. And so here we go. Here's the proclamation. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's the proclamation. So we're called to be ambassadors to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to our friends, neighbors, our children, our grandchildren, loved ones. The 12 apostles were Christ's personal emissaries, personal representatives. They, they had watched Jesus preach. They had watched him teach and minister. And now Jesus says, it's your turn, guys. Go out and do what you've seen me doing. You've been following me around for a few months. Now go do it yourself. Sounds like a good mentor to me. 
But Jesus had commissioned them to preach the message that he had been preaching, that God is reconciling sinners to himself through repentance and faith. That's the message. Now go preach it. Go share it with your neighbors. Make sure you tell it to your kids. People who follow Jesus are commissioned to be his ambassadors also. So it's not just these 12. Again, I want you to understand it. this commissioning, this sending includes each of us who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is our job to follow this particular pattern, to go out as Christ's ambassadors, just like the 12, minus the signs, minus the miracles, to proclaim the gospel message of God's kingdom to the world. <clears throat> so the first thing is what? What characteristics should we have if we're going to be following Jesus? Proclamation. Proclaim the gospel. Speak up. Secondly, have a heart for people. Look at verse 17, I'm a 7 rather, and 13. Verse 7 and verse 13. Verse 7 says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over young clean spirits. People who were possessed by demons, they could cast out the demons. Jump down to 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What was going on here? They were meeting the needs of suffering people. Why? Because they had a heart after God. They wanted to, they wanted to do what God did in Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus do these very same things. They saw Jesus' heart for people. They wanted to have a heart for people. They walked into a town, they saw hurting people, and they ran to meet those needs. Why? Because they had a heart for people just like God does. That is our call as well, to demonstrate the characteristic of a heart for people. Do you have a heart for people? Do you think, yeah, I'm, I'm that kind of person? Or do you need work there? I think we all need work there a little bit, don't we? We're so caught up in our situation, our daily struggles, our, you know, busyness, that these hurting people are walking in and by and through our lives every day, and we're blind to it, aren't we? Well, one of the characteristics here that, that Jesus asked of these 12 guys is don't be blind to it. Recognize when someone hurting walks into the room and do what you can to alleviate that pain. These people were healing sick people. These 12 were casting out demons who were being oppressed by these demons. So God desires to relieve. God is a God, first of all, that is a compassionate God, a, a, a God that has a heart for people, and he wants those who follow him to be the same kind of people. We must be compassionate people. Think about Jesus' miracles. What, what kind of miracles did, did Jesus do, mostly? Sure, he walked on water, yeah, uh, he calmed the storm, but that, and maybe even those, uh, most of them are all related to alleviating the suffering of people, aren't they? The leper, the lame man, the withered hand, the bleeding woman, the dead girl. What's going on? God is alleviating the suffering of hurting people. Why? Because he's a compassionate God. And people that follow him are like him. We're to be compassionate people. Listen to how uh, Paul describes this in his ministry to the Thessalonian church. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8. 
For we, that's Paul and his companion ministers, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek the glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now look what he says here. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. See, those who follow Christ are just like Paul. They, they, they want to be compassionate. They're not so concerned about converting someone to their religion and winning an argument. They're concerned about hurting people, which is what we should be. You become very dear to us. And so what do you do with people who are dear to you? You share with them what is most important. <laughs> the love of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? What's the next thing we see that Jesus wants? What kind of characteristics? Here's the third one, dependence on God. Look at verses 8 and 9, dependence on God. So he wants you to proclaim the gospel, be proclaimers, he wants you to have a heart for people, and he wants you to, to depend on him. Verses 8 and 9. Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. <laughs> well, my question when I studied this last week was, could I travel like this? Maybe to Wapato, but if I got past Wapato, We'd have some issues. I know my wife would not go along with me if this was our itinerary. It wouldn't, she'd go, well, good luck. See you when you get back, right? That kind of attitude that we have about this kind of command. What do you mean? No food, no money. <laughs> then what? You see, here, here's what's then what. One of the greatest lessons of the Christian life is dependence. Je Jesus Jesus wanted his disciples to be adequately supplied, but not to the point where they cease to live by faith. God wants us to depend on him. You know what glorifies God is not your independence, but your dependence. Not your ability, not your knowledge, but your lack of those things. Because then he comes in and meets the needs of those of his people and receives the glory for doing so. If you're never in need, God is never glorified in your life, is what you need to hear. We need to be a dependent people because God is glorified in meeting the needs of his people. Where does living by faith come in if, if not in our physical lives? Do you think that you exercise dependence? I was reminded this by this of a lady in the first service. I've forgotten about this, but... My daughter, to practice this uh, challenge of living by dependence, decided for a week that she would not eat a thing unless someone offered it to her. How'd you like to do that for a week? Uh, hey, you want to go to lunch Thursday? Yes! Yes, I want to go to lunch on Thursday. Thank you. Lord bless you. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus said about this in, in Matthew 6. Therefore, don't be anxious. Uh, no food, no bag, no money. That's the, that's the bell that says be anxious, right? Well, Jesus says here, well, don't be anxious. Asking for these very things. 
What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after those things, and your heavenly Father knows exactly that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom, of the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all this other stuff he'll take care of. Live dependently on him. We need to learn this lesson, don't we? This is the kind of characteristic that God wants of people who he's going to send out. Not, not independent. No. Dependent. God had better come through. We have, must have the attitude of if God wills, if God permits, if God supplies, then I'll survive. The next characteristic is seen in verse 10. Look at it. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. What do you think the characteristic is? Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Contentment. Be content with what you're given, with your circumstances. Only problem with telling people in the 21st century to be content is they don't know what that word means. Contentment in our day and age is elusive, isn't it? Because everybody around me has, it seems at least, has way more than I do. You know, they got a new car rolling into that driveway every couple of years. They got this, they got that, they got the other thing. Uh, who can be content in that environment? Well, there's the point. <laughs> God's servants can be content in that environment. We can be content with what we have. Stay where you are. Stay put. Be content. The reason Jesus said this to these guys and is so helpful to us is because these particular guys, these 12, were given certain powers that no one else had in the community. Right? They could make sick people well. What else could they do? They could cast out demons. So if you walk into a neighborhood and all this is going on, and all of a sudden you start casting out demons and making sick people well, who's the popular guy in town? These 12. That's who. And so they would be getting offers left and right to promote their situation, to move up the ladder, to be more, have more, enjoy it all. And so Jesus said, listen, this is going to be happening. I want you to be content with what you have. You go to a city, someone takes you in, you stay there until you leave. Be content. Right? As Christ's messengers, we need to understand that we are not in relationships, in any relationships, for advancement. We should not be attending church to advance our careers. You know, I'm going to go to church and hand out my cards, go to church and have sales meetings, go to church and befriend the up-and-comers, the movers and shakers. No, no. Be content as a servant of Christ. We are alive to serve the king of the universe by being faithful where he has planted us, with what he has given us. What's the, op the opposite of contentment? Discontentment, right? If there is a person who claims to know God, claims to have embraced Jesus Christ as their savior, and yet they are consistently discontent, what does that tell you about what they believe? It's certainly a red flag. 
It, it seems that though there's something concerning under the surface, I know God and I follow Jesus, but I want a better car. It doesn't sound right, does it? Why? Because it's not right. <laughs> it's not wrong. It's not wrong to want a better car. I'm just saying those of us who say we are content in Christ ought to be content in Christ. One of the reasons that discontentment uh, is so problematic for Jesus' followers, it, it, it reveals a lack of belief in what Jesus offers. He really isn't all-sufficient for my needs. Well, how do you know I think that? Well, because you're discontent. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says this to Timothy, but godliness, listen, with contentment is great gain. Godliness isn't so great if you're not content, in other words. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food, clothing, with these things we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. The love of money, not money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered off from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. There you go. What's the danger of discontentment? That. <laughs> That's a big danger, isn't it? A few years ago, we, or a couple years ago, I can't remember exactly when it was, we studied the book of Philippians. And towards the end of the book, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul says this concerning contentment. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what's the key to contentment? Christ is the key to contentment. He actually is sufficient for our needs. And so one of the character qualities of someone who follows Christ is to be content with Christ. Next, be discerning. Verse 11. And if any, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when, they, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Discernment is in short supply in our world, isn't it? As Christians, a lack of discernment can be lethal, in fact. It's rare to encounter a truly discerning person, but that is exactly what Jesus called these 12 to. Discernment. Shaking the dust off your feet when you left somewhere was a sign that that place had rejected your message. You don't want me here anymore telling you what's most important than shake the dust off your feet and walk on down the road is what Jesus said. But knowing when to do that is critical. Having discernment on when you've said enough about Christ with a certain friend to say no more takes serious discernment. There does come a time, we learn, when a person with whom you've been sharing the gospel makes it abundantly clear that they have no interest and never will. And Jesus said to these same 12 men, don't throw your pearls before swine. Move on. Know when that time is. Be wise, be discerning. 
But this particular area is not the only area in which we need discernment in the Christian life, is it? This is the only area mentioned in this passage. But the list is long where Christians need discernment. You need discernment. Let me make mention of a couple. <clears throat> the company we keep, the friends we make. Do you discernment in that? Yeah, you do. We all do. Which is why we spend time teaching our kids how to make good friends. What else do we need discernment? How to spend our time and money. Those things that we think are ours, that we've earned, that we deserve. Evidently, there's some, some good ways and some bad ways to spend the things that God has given us, time and money. Be discerning about that. Is how you spend your time profitable? Is how you spend your money honoring to God? It requires discernment in the Christian life. So, we've seen so far these character qualities, six of them, of Jesus' messengers. People who want to follow Christ ought to have this kind of character. But what about the content? Let's say you have the character that we just reviewed. What are you going to share when you show up to proclaim the message? When you talk to your neighbor over the fence? When you sit at home with your children after dinner? What's going to come out of your mouth? What's the content? That's just as an important point, isn't it? Not just your character, but what you're going to say. This is what Jesus covers next. The content of the message. Look at verse 12. So they went out, after they've been instructed, they went out and proclaimed, listen, that people should repent. So do you have something to use as a marker in your Bible? Highlight the word repent. Underline the word repent. Circle the word repent. Jesus said, when you go, here's the content of your message, repentance. Challenge people to face themselves in the mirror and see for, for reality what they look at and then turn towards Christ. Turn from what you have embraced, turn from the agenda that you've been following and look to Jesus. Follow him with all your heart. That's the message of repentance. That was the apostles' message, but it must be our message as well. But it wasn't just the apostles' message, it was Jesus' message. We heard earlier from Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he began his ministry and began by preaching repentance. So, do you want to be reconciled to God? If you're here today, you're, you probably answer yes to that question. Yeah, I want to be reconciled to God. Do you want your friends, neighbors, family members to be reconciled to God? Sure. Well, what do you need to tell your friends? Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what you tell your friends. This is what you must believe to receive salvation, to find yourself in heaven one day. Repentance. Luke 9, 6 said that these 12, describing the same story, these 12 went throughout the villages preaching the gospel. Now, let me ask you just to put on your thinking cap for a second. Had Jesus yet died when he told them to go proclaim the message of the kingdom? No. 
Had he risen from the dead? Of course not. He hadn't died yet. So, no repentance, no resurrection to talk about. No clear understanding of the true identity of Jesus at this point. What in the world was the gospel they were preaching? <laughs> you ever thought about that? Uh, what am I going to go preach, Jesus? Here it is. Listen. Repentance. <laughs> Repentance, in a nutshell, is the gospel. Let me explain. All right? To start with, when was the first hint of the gospel given in the Bible? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? No. Keep going. Back, back. Psalms? Further back. It says Abraham knew the gospel. Where'd he hear it from? Further back. Genesis chapter 3. At the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God explained the gospel to Adam and Eve and demonstrated the gospel by the sacrifice of an innocent animal to pay for their sin. The gospel has been around since day one. Old Testament folks who were in touch with God knew the gospel up and down. When Abraham was going to take his son Isaac to the mountain of Moriah, which is where Jesus was crucified, by the way, when, when Abraham was going obediently to take his son there to sacrifice him on an altar, it took him three days to get there. What do you think they talked about? The weather? No. They talked about the gospel. They talked about how this sacrifice would be a demonstration of the ultimate sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Abraham, it says, preached the gospel to Isaac in that setting. Friends, this was before Jesus was born, before he lived, before he died, before he was resurrected, the gospel was clearly presented to the people in the Old Testament. So, these 12 guys show up, they knew the gospel. They knew that God would supply an innocent for the, for the guilt of the sinner. In order to access that gift of God, that, that, that sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, repentance was the way to that sacrifice. They knew. They knew the gospel, and repentance was the door to it. <laughs> this was amazing. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached, preached resent, repentance. The apostles preached repentance. We don't need to change what's preached. It's really simple. You have gone your own way your entire life. That leads to death and destruction if you continue down that road. But there's a way out of that. Turn your life over to Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your sin. Turn from it and run to him and you will be saved. That's the gospel. That's simple, isn't it? You don't have to be a scholar to understand the gospel. You don't have to be some linguistic genius to understand the text. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. <laughs> 
simple enough for children. But repentance is the door to the gospel. Now, so that you understand repentance clearly enough, I want to bring in uh, an old timer. His name is Thomas Watson. He lived and died in the 17th century. He was an English Puritan. He wrote a book called Repentance, appropriately. And this book is short, it's easy to read, and we all need to have read it. It's excellent. I'm going to give you the cliff notes to this book, not so that you don't need to read it, but to whet your appetite. Okay? So, following is Thomas Watson's description of repentance, what it means, in case there are some that may not grasp it. He begins his book by a description, right? A definition. Repentance, he said, is a grace of God's spirit. In other words, repentance comes from God. It's a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. I can tell if you've repented. And I can tell if you haven't. Just by looking. All right? So... Let's repeat it. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby the sinner is inwardly humbled and, vis- humbled and visibly reformed. He then went on to identify six ingredients that I'm going to share with you right now of true repentance. Six ingredients of true repentance. Number one, a sight of sin. A sight of sin. This is where true repentance starts. You have to recognize there's sin in your life. If you don't recognize their sin, you're not going to repent of it, are you? <laughs> as long as you think you're doing well, what's there to repent of? So, Watson says, the first thing that must take place in your life is sight of sin. You'll, you'll, you'll need to repent of what you see. Secondly, a sorrow for what you see. Sorrow for sin. Th- this isn't sorry for being caught. <laughs> no, not that kind of sorrow. It's actually remorse. It's, it's genuine sorrow for offending God. This is what Thomas Watson is talking about. It's being grieved over that which separates you from that friendship with God that you had, if you've ever had it. If, if you are in a relationship now with someone you love, and you offend them to the point where there's a, a, a distinct separation, you've said something or done something, and it offends them, and they go, oh, boy, oh. what do you do? If you love that person, you go and repent, right? You go and restore the relationship. It's the same with God. If you have a relationship with God and you do or say things that disrupt that relationship, what do you do? You, you're sorry and you go deal with it. You go repent. Third, confession. And here's where this comes in. You see the sin, you're sorry for it, and then you confess it. According to Thomas Watson, and what is confession? It's a voluntary personal judgment. It's simply looking in the mirror, seeing the flaws, and combing the hair. <laughs> That's all it is. Looking in the mirror, seeing the flaws, and confessing it, acknowledging it. Yeah, my hair's messed up. This is what confession is. I have sinned against you, God. That's confession. It's agreeing with God that my words, my thoughts, my deeds have offended him, have been wrong. Now, because of the importance of confession, Watson takes a detour 
and gives us seven benefits of confession. I know, I know this is a little challenge, but you need to stay with me because your eternity depends on it. <laughs> okay, is that good enough reason? <laughs> seven benefits of confession. First, and by the way, this is why we lead you into confession every single Sunday at Sun Valley Church, because of the critical nature of confession. Listen, confession gives glory to God. Confession gives glory to God. You're right, I'm wrong. Confession, secondly, humbles us. Why is that important? Why do we have to be humble? Well, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Thirdly, confession relieves the burdened heart. Do you have a burdened heart? Are you walking around feeling guilty for things you've done or said? Or guilty for things you haven't done and haven't said that you should have? That's called a burdened heart, weighing heavy on your soul. Guess what? Confession relieves that burden. So why wouldn't you run to Christ with your sin and have it relieved? Then finally, or fourthly rather, confession cleans out sin. If you confess your sin, he forgives your sin, right? And what cleanses you from all unrighteousness? This is what confession does. The great Augustine called confession the expeller of vice. You want to get rid of those vices or you want to hang on to those babies? <laughs> you want to get rid of them. And so what do you do? You confess them to God and to one another. Fifthly, confession endears Christ to our souls. And I want Christ endeared to my soul. I want Christ to come near me because of his love for me. Sixth, confession brings God's forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. Yeah. Seventh, confession spurs God to mercy. I don't know about you, but I really want God to be merciful towards me. I, I need his mercy. So I'm going to do what I can to spur him towards mercy. I'll confess my sin. So let's get back to these six reasons for repentance, six ingredients, sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin. Fourth, shame for sin. Shame for sin. Instead of being boastful about the sinful things you've accomplished, the th sinful things you've done, uh, how about doing the opposite? This is what repentance causes, shame. Remember the prodigal son, was he ashamed or proud of his sin? He was ashamed of his sin, right. Next was hatred for, for sin. True repentance causes us to hate the sin that causes a separation between us and our Savior. And so we're going to hate anything that causes that separation. Sin is that. And I'm not talking just about the heinous sins, the ones that we all recognize. I'm talking about all sin. All sin separates us from God. So don't, don't, don't believe the lie that there's little sins and big sins. All sins in the same category. It separates us from God. And those things that separate us from God need to be avoided like the plague, need to be hated. 
<clears throat> Sixth, a turning from sin. There's, there's the actual word. Repentance means to turn from. It's actually walking away from sin instead of trying to figure out ways to secretly continue in it. You know, just as long as nobody else hears about it, as long as nobody else knows about it, I can kind of, you know, keep doing my little deed. No. True repentance walks away from sin. Remember what Jesus said? If you struggle with sin with your eyes, what are you supposed to do? Pluck them out. Hyperbole. How about if you sin with your hands? Off they go. Another hyperbole. For what point? You'd better hate sin. All right, you'd better run from sin. You better walk away from sin or it will have disastrous eternal consequences is what Jesus was saying. The reason John the Baptist, Jesus, and the Twelve preach repentance is because repentance is central to the gospel message. I've given you a gospel message this morning simply by talking to you about repentance. You know what to believe. You know what to do. Because I've talked to you about repentance. We cannot remain in our sin and at the same time believe that God has forgiven us. Hmm. God forgives in response to our repentance. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that once you repent, you're good to go. No. Repentance, as Pastor Rick said earlier, is a daily event in the life of a Christian. It's something we continue to be. We are confessors. We are repenters. This is what marks us as Christians. Repentance and the resurrection of Jesus go hand in hand. Have you seen it this morning? The resurrection is God's promise that the work of Christ for all who repent is true and sure. He will, in fact, forgive your sins if you come to him in repentance. Why? How do you know that? Because God raised Jesus from the dead to prove it. Repentance is, is access to God, and we know that that access will result in forgiveness because Jesus came out of the grave. He promised that he would forgive for those who put their trust and faith in him, and God confirmed that promise by raising Jesus back to Christ, to, back to alive 2,000 years ago. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we read earlier also, so I won't repeat it. But it says that we believe because of the resurrection. Are you sitting here believing in Jesus this morning? It's because he raised from the dead. He came out of the tomb. The power of God is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ at work in those who believe. Romans chapter 1. Repentance gives us access to the resurrection. Not only the benefits of Jesus' resurrection, but to our own resurrection. One day where we'll see him face to face. What a glorious day that's going to be. When we are resurrected to life, to be with our resurrected Savior forever and ever. Friends, repentance runs in and through the gospel story. There is no gospel without repentance. So Jesus could say to the twelve, and he says to you this morning... Go proclaim repentance. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you as repenters, as confessors, and acknowledge the sin that is in our lives, the sin that, that separates us from you. And we, we take this sin and run to your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has paid the penalty for that sin. And we lay all of our sin at his feet and claim the promises of Christ that you have confirmed by raising your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, what a glorious gospel this is. Glorious to you, joyful for us. We praise your name and we will throughout eternity because you have promised to forgive the sins of those who were turned from it, repent and embrace your son, Jesus Christ. And we do so at this moment again and will continue to do it throughout our lives. Encourage our hearts now as we think about these things. Help us to have opportunity to share the good news, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to those around us. We rejoice in this Resurrection Sunday together. And it's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.